You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. everyone and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, we have a long way to go, but the uh, glass is not uh, empty. That's Joseph Nye. He's the former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He served as chair of the National Intelligence Council and as assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs under President Clinton. He currently serves as a commissioner for the Global Commission on Internet Governance and is the author of over a dozen books, including Soft Power, the means to success in world politics and the future of power. In general, it takes about uh, 20 years if we look back to the nuclear example for states to adjust to a new disruptive technology. And we're about 20 years into the cyber era in the sense of the internet becoming the substrate for economics, politics, and social interactions. Obviously, uh, the computer age goes back much earlier and the Internet goes back to the early 70s. But it's only really in the last 20 years that you've seen all of our social and economic systems become dependent upon cyber connections. And that creates uh, that interdependence creates vulnerability and vulnerability creates insecurity. And so in that sense, the modern age of cybersecurity really is about 20 years. And it's interesting, again, to compare this to the nuclear era. It was about 20 years after nuclear weapons were first burst on the scene, so to speak, uh, that you had an agreement between states, which was the limited test ban treaty and 
1962 and uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1968. So in that sense, uh, even though the technology is totally different, in terms of reacting to a disruptive new technology, uh, we're about where we were uh, in the nuclear era. Hmm. Now, in terms of, of that comparison, uh, it strikes me that one of the differences might be that there's no barrier to entry that there, that there is, uh, for example, in, in the nuclear club, if you will. Oh, that's right. And the technologies are totally different. But the interesting question is sort of the meta question is how long does it take uh, states and societies to begin to cope with the meaning of a new and disruptive technology? So uh, cyber is, is totally different in terms of barriers to entry. Also, cyber has many more benign effects. Uh, nuclear was supposed to produce electricity too cheap to meter. Of course, that didn't turn out. Uh, that way, cyber has obviously become a major uh, factor in economic growth and in widespread social benefits. So while it's created new insecurity, uh, it also has created great benefits. And what the, the ratios or proportions are very different from the nuclear technology, and the participants are very different. But nonetheless, it takes time for societies to adjust. And new technologies. And, and so when you look along that timeline and, and you, you note where we are, what do you think we have ahead of us? Well, I think the uh, immediate uh, uh, point is to begin to consolidate some of the gains that have been made. There is a norm of prudence of not disrupting the basic structure of the internet. In other words, if you if you interfere with the main name systems, um, uh, you're not going to be able to have communications. And in that sense, we don't have disruption at that level. Uh, and I think you would say there's sort of a norm of coordination there. In addition, if you look at the report of the United Nations group of government experts in uh, 2015, uh, they laid out some uh, broad norms about not attacking civilian targets, uh, which are a start. And you have some areas, for example, the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, where a, a set of states uh, have agreed on procedures they'll take to deal with crime. So there are areas where there's uh, where norms exist. And there are obviously large areas where we haven't uh, solved the normative problem. Now, what about efforts, uh, I'm thinking of, of like the Talon Manual, where folks are trying to uh, describe the, the interaction between the rules between cyber conflict and, and uh, kinetic conflict. Uh, is, is that a, a good step along the way? Absolutely. I, I'm a great admirer of the work Mike Schmidt and others have done on the Talon Manual, but uh, it, it it touches an area which was the how does cyber relate to, to the, the law of armed conflict, uh, and that's very important. And having states agree that international law, including not only law of the UN Charter but the laws of armed conflict, apply in cyber, is a very important step. But 
uh, there are lots of issues that it doesn't uh, take care of, uh, obviously. So, uh, yeah, big plus, but fills out a little bit more of that glass, uh, partly full. Now, what about the asymmetry when it comes to cyber conflict? You know, it doesn't uh, it doesn't take a lot of money for a nation state to spin up uh, powerful cyber capabilities. How is that going to play out on the global stage? Well, the asymmetry is uh, is important. I mean, we tend to think that anybody uh, can uh, that cyber is a, is a leveler or equalizer, and anybody can do the same thing. Uh, it depends what you're talking about. If you want a, uh, a denial of service attack or uh, an ability to launch a ransomware attack, lots of actors can get into that. Uh, you know, you can buy kits on the dark web for some of this. On the other hand, if you're trying to produce something which is an elaborate attack, uh, like the Stuxnet attack on centrifuges in Iran, that takes a major investment, uh, not only technical, but also human resources. The world isn't level uh, for that type of sophisticated attack. So people, I think, would still say that countries like the U.S. and uh, uh, Russia, China, France, uh, so forth, have capabilities which are, are much greater than other states' capabilities. But it is interesting to see Iran and North Korea and others begin to play in the game. Now, we see uh, stories of nation-states reaching out and uh, exploring each other's critical infrastructure, the power systems, and and I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of concern about that. Uh, what is your take on that in terms of how, where that... Is there, is there a point where there starts to be serious pushback against those sorts of explorations? I mean, how do we handle that from a diplomatic point of view? Well, the, the, there are press reports that um, the uh, Russians and the Chinese have uh, uh, entered the American electrical grid. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's reciprocal. Uh, there is the question of what's called, you know, the general intelligence of uh, preparing for potential escalatory situations. There's also uh, situations where this type of, of exploration has become an attack, which is what the Russians did with the grid in Ukraine in uh, uh, 2015 and, and 16. You get situations where for example, Russian hacking into Ukrainian banking or tax revenue system, I guess, as part of their hybrid warfare in eastern Ukraine led to the, this vast collateral damage that characterized the, the NotPetya attack last year. So those are examples where uh, things have advanced far beyond the general reconnaissance type intelligence. And uh, I think that's the area that's particularly uh, worrisome. On the question of, uh, of general, what's called uh, computer network exploitation or general intelligence gathering, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. But the kinds of attacks that you've seen uh, in Ukraine, and particularly ones like NotPetya with its uh, 
enormous collateral damage. Uh, uh, some people have estimated it may have cost the world $10 billion. That's something different. What is an appropriate response to something like that? Even if the, the damage is unintentional, uh, which it seems as though in that case it may have been, um, how, what's the proper way for the global community to respond? Well, I think you need uh, to have deterrence, uh, and that means the capacity to uh, both deter by denial and by retaliation. Denial means the hardening of your system so that the benefits of attack are less uh, easily obtained. And retaliation means that there's punishment for it. Whether the Ukrainians are able to handle that kind of retaliation, I'm not sure. I think the United States could. And one of the problems I think we saw after the Russian interference in the 2016 American presidential elections was that uh, the Americans did not take strong enough retaliatory action to effectively create deterrence for the future. And uh, only now are we beginning to, to realize that. And, and of course, I, I suppose the, uh, the attitude of the, the current administration uh, doesn't help that effort. Well, the problem in terms of retaliation for the 2016 attack is it got wrapped up in domestic politics. Mm-hmm. And the president's concern that the charges of Russian or interference in the election undermined the legitimacy of his election victory, which of course was an electoral college victory, not a popular vote victory. That's made him very sensitive and an unwillingness to take uh, strong actions. I mean, it's interesting that uh, last month the president did sign an executive order uh, uh, authorizing sanctions, including uh, economic travel and uh, other type of sanctions uh, against actors who interfere with elections. Uh, we'll have to see how well that's applied. Now, what about uh, this uh, tendency for some of these nations, I'm thinking of, of China certainly, and to a certain degree Russia, a sort of splintering off their, their internet access, limiting what citizens can see and do, what they can search for. How does that all play into this? The old view of the 90s, the sort of libertarian view of the Internet as as above states and transnational, uh, uh, led to the so-called Internet freedom agenda, I think that's been proven to be mistaken. Uh, The Internet is a hybrid affair. The servers, uh, the physical apparatus, resist relies upon physical presence within sovereign boundaries. And that means when states um, uh, assert sovereign control, uh, whether by confiscating uh, assets from a company or internet service provider or by locking up a particular individual, this sovereign control is there. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, China and Russia and other authoritarian states have uh, tried to fence off the uh, political and social aspects of the internet, uh, but maintain its economic benefits. In other words, the benefits that come from communication. 
And uh, they've been much more successful at this than people expected. Now, of course, you are very well known for pioneering the theory of soft power. Uh, I was wondering, could you explain that to us, first of all, and then, and then sort of extend it to how you think soft power and also the notion of smart power applies to the cyber domain? Well, soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. And uh, it does affect uh, states' uh, uh, reputations. For example, uh, if a state wants to preserve its reputation uh, to make itself more attractive to others, then it may decide to refrain from certain actions which violate taboos. For example, a state which held biological weapons would be uh, basically undercutting its own soft power. Biological Weapons Convention has very little of the way of verification uh, or enforcement. It really just says uh, states will report uh, violations to the UN Security Council. On the other hand, uh, the calumny or the, the cost to a state soft power of being seen to hold or use biological weapons is considerable. And that's one of the reasons, uh, reputational costs and damage to your soft power, why uh, states will sometimes uh, refrain from actions which uh, the cost would be out of proportion to the benefits. What is the role of the United States in this, in terms of, of leadership, of, of helping to establish what will be the norms going forward for cybersecurity? Well, the U.S. Uh, has had a, a strong position for quite some time that it's in our interest to try to develop norms in this area. As some people say, it, you know, uh, we live in the biggest, glassiest of glass houses. So uh, if all we do is rely upon the threat of throwing stones, it's a part of a defense, but it's not sole more that we can develop norms in which people decide that uh, they will not risk their soft power or reputation, the better it it will be for us in this uh, asymmetrical interdependence that uh, different states have on on cyber. Uh, And so if you look at um, the Russians proposed a treaty, a UN treaty, uh, on cyber or information technology, as they put it, all the way back in 1998. Uh, the U.S. said this is unverifiable and a bad idea. But in uh, 2004 and 5, um, the U.N. Uh, group of government experts on information technology was created. And uh, over the next decade, they managed to produce some interesting uh, principles to limit cyber conflict, and the U.S. took a leading role there. The, uh, if you look at the uh, steps or the, that were uh, implemented, uh, they and some of them trace back to statements in a speech that uh, the Secretary of State Kerry gave uh, in uh, Seoul, Korea, some years ago, and the work of American diplomats at the working level, like Chris Painter and Michelle Markoff and others, um, really were uh, important steps in this larger strategy of saying that it's in American interest to 
see the development of norms, it's not going to solve all these problems. We do need deterrence as well, but uh, it may make some of it easier for us to manage. Our thanks to Joseph Nye from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government for joining us. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.